0: Welcome to the PeaceCast, where justice and peace meet. A podcast from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, presented by John Cooper. When did you last read your Bible? No, when did you really read the Bible? You know, all those awkward bits about violence, judgment, plagues, famine, the sort of passages that lead to visions that somehow stay with you long after you've turned that thin, thin page. Well, today we're privileged to sit down with an academic who set off in mythology and still gives a time and attention to filtering what we can expect to get life from. This time it's the word of life, the Bible, an ordained Baptist minister. She's a master's in missional church leadership, a PhD focused on the Old Testament in specifically humour in the Book of Kings, I'm thrilled to welcome to the Peace Cast, author, podcast host and director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence, Dr Helen Painter. Welcome Helen. Thank you very much. Violence in the Bible, let's be honest, it's not an easy topic to spend your time immersed in. Where did your journey start?
1: My journey, I think, with this question started uh, probably before I did any theological education, when I was still in medicine. Um, And I had a phone call one evening from um, our church youth worker. Um, And I don't know why she phoned me. I think she was working her way down the membership list and got as far as P. And I can assure you that after our conversation, she carried on to the queues because um, her question was one of the uh, young people in in our congregation had started reading the Bible in just the way you described and was stumbling across some of these um, passages and was really struggling with them and um, the youth worker was hoping that I might have some ideas of what I could say to help this young woman not to lose her faith and I, I, didn't, I didn't think I had anything sensible to say at the time but it, it, it drew my attention to what should have been clear to me all along really um, that, that there are narratives here which when we kind of stop reading them as kind of pious little stories but engage with them as if we were seeing them you know um, with the blood and the spattered brains mm-hmm. and so on we would be very disturbed by
0: them yeah so what did you begin to dis- discover as you read them more d- deeply either to answer that question or just cuz it never quite left your mind
1: well i guess I, I went away and did i did a lot of study i think one of the th- one of the key things i discovered was that there is no such thing as just all of that violence in the Old Testament. There's a whole there's a whole range of different types of violence. And I don't just mean in terms of what it would look like if you're standing looking at it, mm-hmm. but in terms of what what it's what purpose it's serving. All right. Um so there's violence that is described, um, much as newspapers would describe violence, mm-hmm. there's, there's violence that is um implored in prayer. Um, there is violence that is used for judgment. There is violence that is commanded. Um, so There's violence that is done as a, as a public act to, um, uh, to, to make a, a kind of statement, usually insertion of power. So there's a whole range of different types of violence and we can't give an answer, a single answer to all of those. Um, they all need to be studied in, in their own way, I think.
0: And how did your view of both the Old Testament but also violence itself and, and what it does, how did that, I guess it changed? How did it change?
1: Well, I went and, I went away and did some study around what violence is because we think we know what violence is. But actually, if you start defining it, it's much more slippery than, than we imagine. Um, so can violence include um, words? Can mm. violence include structures? Um, does violence always have to be intentional? Um, you know, a whole lot of questions. Is violence political? What's the what's the performative action of violence? In other words, what's it what's it doing? What's it achieving? Many sorts of violence have to be done publicly in order to quote work unquote um, that they don't do what the perpetrator is trying to achieve if they're not done publicly. So I, I learned a whole lot about different theories of violence, which are really helpful then when I come back to the scriptures um, and start bringing those contemporary theories into kind of dialogue and um, with, with, with the ancient text.
0: So do you think to start with and we'll come on in more detail to one specific area actually all of us do need to do a bit of that learning before we can read this the old testament.
1: Ooh well I guess that's a counsel of perfection but I would <laughs> never want to um never want to dissuade someone from from reading the bible. I think that I think if we are wise, we read with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another, you know, that we are continually trying to bring scripture into dialogue with contemporary events and, and vice versa. But I'm not sure I'd want to say that everybody's got to go away and, and kind of do a master's in it or something because actually, you know, scripture is there for, for, for everybody.
0: So let's let's look at the book of Judges, which I know you spent mm-hmm. a bit of time reading in. Uh, I just had a, a quick browse earlier on. And I'll be honest, it felt like the the blood or lust for war was almost stripping off the pages. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read sort of uh, Viking sagas, who in <laughs> sort of two sentences have killed half a village. Well, it's, it's very similar here. I mean, for yep. example, we've got in about the the second paragraph, when Judah attacked, the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Presites into their power, and they struck down ten thousand of them in Bezek. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a
1: pretty striking.
0: And then, sort you of, count? you know, we're we're closer to. To the end of Judges 20, then the men of Israel turned back against the Benjamites, putting them to the sword, the inhabitants of the cities, the livestock and all they came upon. Moreover, they destroyed by fire all the cities they came along. And then there's usually an awkward pause in church. And then somehow we're meant to mumble, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, how can we honestly do that in particular with a very violent book like Judges?
1: Well, I think in order to do that, we need to take a step back and work out what's going on in this in this book in general. What's the per- what's the book written for? Um, what's it? What's the author trying to show us? Now, the clue in Judges, and one of the clues, this is a, a general tip actually for reading the Old Testament, is to look for repeated words or phrases. Um, so we have a repeated phrase in Judges, and it's this. In those, I'm going to say, give you a fairly literal translation. Um, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm. Now, that'll often be smoothed out in modern translations as everybody did what they saw fit. Yeah. Um, but it, if we leave it literal, it might become clear why I think that's a good idea in, in a minute. But we see this, this phrase, I think it's twice in its entirety, maybe three times, um, and we see fragments of it mm. in other places. And it, al- it
0: almost finishes the book.
1: It does. It it keeps coming back. Um, Now, this is our big clue as to what's going on. So Judges is set before the monarchy. Um, We're coming up. The next the next thing that's going to happen is the birth of Samuel, who's the kingmaker, of course. And we're going to get Saul and then David and and so on. Um, But at the moment, we've we've moved from um, Joshua's strong leadership um, when they're taking the land, that whole brings its own questions but perhaps that's for another podcast recording they've moved from there and they're in this hiatus when they've taken the land partly at least and they haven't yet organized themselves under one king and quite frankly it is anarchical Mm. and the book of judges is showing us that i think judges the best correlation i could could give would be in places where we have seen in in modern times have seen the breakdown of law and order because there is no effective government. So, you know, you think about what, what we saw happening when, I don't know, when Yugoslavia put, uh, broke apart or, or in Syria, you know, when the when government isn't operative, mm-hmm. then then the powerful abuse the weak and that's what we're seeing in, in judges. We see these cycles mm-hmm. where somebody rises for a while and kind of unifies the nation around them a bit and beats back the enemy a bit. And but but they're always flawed. And there are these catastrophic moral failures. And effectively, this is a case study um, to show why the nation needs, well, why in particular it needs King David.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, so I think you were quite interested in uh, exploring the story of the unnamed woman in in Judges nineteen, just to help Mm. our listeners really get get more of a tangibility and less of the sort of Shakespeare meets the daily politics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, shall I summarise? So yeah, just
0: summarise the story and then we can pick it apart a bit.
1: I just need to warn listeners that this is this is a really shocking story, and if you're not familiar with it, it, it may well. Well, it, it, I hope it will shock you anyway, actually. Mm. If, but if you're not familiar with it, it may well could trigger things for people who okay. experience trauma. So I just need to say that. So what we've got is we've got this woman who doesn't have a name. And in fact, nobody in the, ca- in, the in the narrative has a name, actually. It's not just the woman. And uh, she's described as a pilagesh, which is often translated as concubine. But it's it's just as valid for second wife. So uh, I'm just going to call her, I'm probably going to call her the wife, actually. Okay. Um, so she leaves her husband for some reason that is... Um, undetermined, and there's lots of discussion about that in in the literature. And she goes back to her father, and after three months, three or four months, her her husband goes after her to bring her back. And uh, there's this long and slightly bizarre little scene where uh, the the woman's father is offering this excessive hospitality to his son-in-law and kind of won't let him leave, but eventually son-in-law prizes himself away several days later with the woman and with his servant. And uh, they head off now, they, but they head off late in the day because of the father kind of pressing him to stay. And so they are journeying home. They're journeying back towards, uh, well, to, towards his home. And they, ca- they starting to get towards nightfall. And the servant is getting a bit anxious for their safety. And he says, there's a town over there. Should we go and seek shelter? And the deep irony here because the man says, and at no point is the woman being consulted at all. At no point she's speaking. Uh, the man says, no, we won't go there because that town is not owned by the people of Israel. Um, we'll press on to the next town where we can be sure of a, of a warm welcome. Okay. So they press on and uh, they get to the town and they get to Gibeah and, the, and they, nobody offers them shelter. And they sit in the town square and eventually an old man comes in from work um, outside the village. And he himself actually is, is a stranger in that place or is a visitor, but he's got a home. But he, you know, he's, he's not a native of, of Gibeah. But anyway, he says, you come and stay with me. So they go and stay with him and they are making, making merry, at least the men are making merry. When the men of the town come and surround the house and uh, beats on the door and they say, send out the man who has come to visit you that we may, quote, know, unquote, him. Now, readers of the Bible, certainly if you uh, readers of some of the older translations, will know that that language of knowledge um, refers to carnal knowledge. This is, uh, this is undoubtedly a, uh, a demand to have the man thrown out that they can humiliate him by raping him. Incidentally, this is not a homosexual story. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not about homosexuality. Rape is never about sexual desire. It's yeah. about power. I was going to say, this is about him. sex
0: as power. It's about
1: power, absolutely. Anyway, the, uh, the old man, the, the host, is appalled by this idea, and um, he remonstrates with them, and, and he offers to give up his own virgin daughter and this wife, um, and he offers them instead. Um, but they continue to clamour, for the man Um, and in the end the man throws his own wife out to them and shuts the door behind her and then it says that they they abuse her all night long Um, and in the morning she crawls back to the door of the house and she falls down with her hands on the doorstep and why she's not admitted we don't know did she not have enough energy to call out did they not answer the door we're not told that in the morning so the man opens the door in the morning sees his wife lying there prone with her hands on the doorstep and says we kind of visualize him stepping over her and he says to her literally two words in hebrew up let's go and she doesn't respond now we're not told whether she's alive or dead but he picks her up and he throws her over his donkey and he goes on his way and he gets home and he cuts her in 12. She's dead now anyway. And then he sends the parts of her body as a muster, as a military muster to try and you know, create enough indignation and outrage that um, the men of the, of the nation will come against this town. And then from then on, I won't go into the, uh, further detail, but just to say that things go from bad to worse for the women of the nation actually, mm-hmm. because it ends up with the um, abduction and rape of, of hundreds of women.
0: But let's be honest, that's pretty horrid. It's absolutely dreadful. That's not dreadful. what I go to church for.
1: No, it's absolutely dreadful.
0: So how on earth do we begin to read that?
1: Many people have said, this is a terrible, misogynistic story. How mm-hmm. can this be in my scripture? I think a better way to look at it, and I suppose the clue is what I said a few minutes ago, which is that this whole book is setting out why Israel needs a king, why it needs effective government. And it is showing us, it's giving a series of stories to, tell, to show us why, how important that is. So there is a difference between the events that are being narrated and the opinion of the person who is writing them. If you just, I mean, you know, very simplistically, but if you go down to your local police station and ask to see the charge sheet against mm-hmm. some of the people that got locked up in their, in, in their cells, you know, you'll see the charge sheet that the duty sergeant or whoever has written, that they're not condoning those crimes, they're, they're listing them, they're itemizing them. as as a charge against Mm -hmm. the people that's what that's what judges is and that's what this story is doing so it's it's so what happens within the narrative itself is absolutely terrible absolutely inexcusable and you know beyond words but actually this woman is I think treated with remarkable tenderness by the narrator now that may sound really odd to hear yes um but there's a number of things that that make me say that one of them is the fact that this does not read like game of thrones we are told all we are told is pretty much what i said actually that the man puts her out to them mm-hmm. and they abuse her all night and in the morning she comes back to the door we're not we're not taken up close we're not we don't hear her shrieks we don't see the tearing of her clothes none of that is is portrayed to us the, the narrator kind of takes a discreet distance we don't need pornography it's enough that we hear that it happened.
0: But at the same time, you know, regardless of your view of the Bible, we can all tend to agree it's a collection of stories put together, passed down through time, that speak of the revelation of God. Why does it even need to be in there to start with?
1: Well, I think it's I think it should be there. Do you know? I think if you and I look back at our Bibles and read about those times, which we know were brutal Hmm. hard times if we said and let's say we look back at judges and said you know here's the time this this is this pre-monarchical time this this anarchic society and do you know what they didn't say anything about what happened to women women must have been being abused in those days but the the text is closed on that matter was 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 that so is that so in a matter of such indifference
0: interesting Uh,
1: Judith Butler has um she's a a critical theorist and she speaks about um grievability and she asks the question um of whose lives are grievable so i mean an example of that would be looking at something like Mm 9-11 and the way that those you know that terrible terrible act of atrocity um those lives were infinitely grievable but actually that many people die of hunger or of preventable disease across the world you know every every week or something i don't know the figures but And those lives are much less grievable to to, to many of us. That concept of grievability is very helpful, I think. And and Butler says that you can evaluate a society, really, by whose lives it considers grievable. Now, this woman's life is grievable. Uh, And actually, within a patriarchal society, I think that is remarkable.
0: Okay, so we'll we'll come back to the tenderness of the writing in a minute, but just sort of placing it back in the context of Mavis going up to read the lectionary for the week it's partly important to leave it there well I don't know which bit of the lectionary this may or may not feature in but you know to have those these stories read in church to recognize life can include moments that have violent acts like this so that's that part of your your argument it is it
1: is although interestingly it is not found in the lectionary I understand I don't Mm -hmm. use lectionary in my tradition but I believe it's not there and 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 actually I think that omitting these from readings in church actually we miss an opportunity to stand in solidarity with not only the ancient victims but um, current survivors of abuse as well
0: and that's why things like uh, Thursdays in Black for the World Council of Churches are so important those small things that feel insignificant but say to people we know and we recognize and you're not lost Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so we're back back to this this tender writing as you're suggesting of a, a brutal act. So we're first of all approaching this differently by reading it and saying, no look, the writer is tender. then what do we do?
1: Well, I suppose what we need to do is is to notice so a lot of people have written on this and said the woman is is silenced by the writer. Now for sure, she doesn't speak within the narrative, so in that sense, she's silenced, but I would argue it's more that she's silenced by. The other characters in the story actually who who don't aren't interested in her opinion or anything I actually think that if we look at the way that this story operates on a wider level, actually the woman is is very articulate so the, the next level up is the way that her body is used to evoke indignation uh, to evoke absolute rage um, against the act so there is something about her that continues to speak actually even after her death but beyond that again she is used this story is I think the the most significant story Uh, um, it's the nadir if you like of this of this book which contains some other pretty grim stories as well but this is the lowest moment and so this this woman she has a voice within the book she has a voice in judging the moral status of the nation because of the use of this story. And as it were, she cries out from the grave against Israel uh, within the Book of Judges. And I think the writer has given her that voice, as it were. And in fact, I argue that she um, that really she is the, the last judge of the Book of Judges, because although she never speaks in the way that um, some of the others do, She operates actually perhaps more powerfully than any of them to indict Israel for its moral crimes. And then the fourth level in which she speaks is the way that I think she reaches through the centuries and grips modern readers like you and me by the guts and and, and twists them. Um, And if you look at the way affect theory, um, which is the theory of of how how things move us and, and, uh, and affect us, she she has she exerts powerful torsion to use to to use their words um, upon the modern reader and and so she should <laughs> mm. um, so I think I think that this woman is I th- I, that's this is why I think this woman is treated tenderly because I think that she is given these this very important role to to make us sensitive to her own suffering and to the suffering of of others I expect many um, listeners will be will remember the story of the Delhi bus rape. Um, which was a few years ago, and this is a, a true story. It happened mm. about um, I don't know five or six years ago now, I suppose. This uh, an is Indi- in in Delhi, obviously. A woman got on a bus with her friend. She'd been out to to, to the cinema, um, and there were six I think men on the bus, and uh, they they took the woman to the back of the bus, and they did things that I cannot even say out loud actually on this podcast. Yeah. And uh, she died two weeks later in hospital. But I draw in my book that I've written on this, I draw comparisons because this woman was given the name Fearless by the media who wanted to protect her true identity. And they gave her the a, a name Fearless. And uh, she was, you know, even in her dying weeks, she testified against her attackers. In fact, one of she gave three sworn testimonies and one of them was done um, without words, was done through. Um, through sign and gesture because she was so ill and I think there are huge points of similarity between that story and the story of this this biblical woman.
0: So thinking more more on this and maybe back to some of my earlier questions, do you think part of the reason we've got such a brutal Old Testament is to show the transformative difference that the presence of Jesus brings and the relative lack of violence and hordes of people and stories like this within the gospels.
1: Yes, I do. And I think we need to be careful. I do hear people, and you didn't say this, but I do hear people say quite often, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is violent violent, and the God of the New Testament isn't. And actually, Um, There is a lot of there's a lot of there is violence in the New Mm. Testament and there is also a lot of um, mercy and peace and tenderness um, in the Old Testament. So we do need to be cautious. But whereas categories that we see in physical terms in the Old Testament um, look different in the New Testament. So land and the relationship between land and God's people um, is very tangible in the Old Testament. And it's not um, it's it's it's. It's more to do with the kingdom of God um, and something that is less visible, although absolutely no less real in the New Testament. If you look at the way that the covenant blessings and curses work in the Old Testament, they are in terms of, you know, your your harvest being fruitful and your wives having many children sort of thing. They're they're very physical, very tangible Mm -hmm. things. Covenant blessings look quite different in, in the New Testament. so. So yes, the Old Testament is, it, it's, it's deeply embedded in society in a way that the New Testament isn't quite in the same way, because the New Testament is addressing a, a narrower range of, of concerns. The Old Testament, of course, is set within Bronze Age and, and Iron Age world, which which is a very brutal time. Not that the New Testament, not that the Roman Empire had had improved a lot, I think. But I do think that we see a lot of the a lot of the ways that uh, war and and violence is expressed in the Old Testament, they become metaphors in the New, New Testament. So we've got, you know, Paul in Ephesians saying um, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but put on the oh, and put on the armor of God, which is now something much more, much more metaphorical.
0: So how has all of this influence your own view on sort of what God would say about violence? because you've also done a lot of thinking and I want to move you slightly beyond the, well, it depends on which level, because there's an element of sort of almost academic waterboutery then, you know, oh, <laughs> let's, let's, co- let's all, come back. No, Well, all. no, it's it's <laughs> more about not what could it say, but, you know, the real crunch with most Bible readings is what's it now say to you?
1: Yeah. And, but I mean, there's not a simple, quick answer to that. No, it's fine. One of the things that I, I, that I cannot help but notice is how from the very opening page of scripture, we see God's heart for shalom. And I'm sure listeners know that shalom is the, it's the Hebrew word for peace, but it's much more than just not fighting. It's a, There's a holistic nature to shalom, which is about, you know, your, your health and your mental well-being and your relationships in society mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and we see that in the first two chapters um, where we see this non-hierarchical relationship between the man and the woman, we see this very healthy relationship between the humans and the planet and, and so on. And of course, then it then it breaks and this is the point at which violence comes in and it comes in very clearly and, and we see then actually the link between violence and human sin and the flood is an exploration of that. Uh, violence is absolutely at the root of the flood, but God never lets go Of that pull towards Shalom and he does it in a whole lot of ways, but we keep seeing it. So one of the things that is really striking and I think underexplored is the way that militarism in the Old Testament is continually subverted in a whole load of ways. We get times when people try to go to war and God tricks them into into not fighting. Um, He sends auditory and visual hallucinations to send chase armies home. Um, So they don't fight. We see times and we see some of these in judges where victory is taken by a woman using domestic implement rather than a man using a sword or a spear. There are times I mean, there's the, the whole Gideon story, which is. Hilarious, but I mean, not, you know, not not trivial because it's hilarious. But you know, when have you when have you ever heard yeah. someone say your army's is too big? And that's what God consistently says to Gideon until he's only got three hundred men. And and so there's a whole load of things that that subvert the kind of um, the militarism. Uh, David is not allowed to build the temple because he's a man of blood. Very striking. And then we get we get the eschatological yearning of the prophets. Isaiah would be you know, a classic example where. He envisions a world where the lion and the lamb lie down together. There's the bit that we miss out of the Christmas readings, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But there's this bit about every warrior's boot that is rolled in blood will be destined as fuel for the fire. This is what the coming of the son of God means. This is what the promise is. But we skip over that bit.
0: So so really, is there an element that a lot of the violence of the Old Testament is almost trying to reframe humanity's view about the inevitability and or use of violence sounds like what you're beginning to argue which is quite interesting
1: yeah i mean i I think i think there's more than one strand and and there certainly is a militaristic strand i mean I, i can't get around it you know i i cannot find any way of getting around reading that god tells joshua to go and conquer the land of canaan but alongside that there is also this kind of constant subversion of militarism Yeah, which I think is part of this great trajectory towards Shalom, which we ultimately see restored uh, in the last two chapters of the
0: Bible. So you've I've I've really enjoyed exploring this with you. You're, You're head of an academic institution. What have you discovered through teaching this? To students, what things have you then sort of discovered from their experience and the, and the stories they've shared in response? Because, you know, just from our little conversation earlier about that excerpt from Judges, that could open up all sorts, be it in a lecture hall or in a small group. It's the richness of that time spent in the Bible. So,
1: Oh gosh, we always learn so much from, from our students and, and also when I, you know, talk with members of the public as well. One of the things that I have realised is how if you think about the book of Joshua which we haven't spoken about very much but I've touched on if you ask your average Christian in a pew what the book of Joshua says they will give you um, almost always a a a narrative which is Joshua blazed into the land and put the thing to 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 the sword and burned you know scorched earth policy sort of thing now we do see things in the book of Joshua that that indicate that but alongside it we see this uh, another story another voice Um, which is constantly downplaying the violence. And it's been very striking to me as as I've spent time talking with others about it of noticing what what is noticed and what is overlooked in the narrative. And so uh, there's one bit in Joshua, for example, one verse that says Joshua went to such and such a city and he destroyed it um, and he left no, uh, and, and everybody in it. Second half of the verse says, and when the survivors had gone into the fortified cities, so the first half of the verse appears to give this kind of scorched earth thing. Second half of the verse talks about the survivors. And and yet somehow we have only noticed one, one of those narratives and we fail to notice the other one.
0: That's good. And obviously some of the people you teach go on to be uh, pastors and ministers and preachers within the, the Baptist tradition. I think you've a bit of a background in that training. What have you found about how to enable the, the preachers to explore these issues well because you know we're a peace organization we like peace but actually you can't do that without recognizing violence and we've already had to say listen folks there's something horrific coming up.
1: I think two big things would be one is learn to read Hebrew narrative well Hebrew narrative in other words the stories of the Old Testament
0: in the original language um, no or? not necessarily i mean obviously okay.
1: uh, that's great but uh, but actually it's learning to be sensitive readers learning to read for plot learning to read for characterization not just assuming that a story is there to to bolster the reputation of or, or, of somebody or or that we should that we f- should feel the need to defend the indefensible which actually many preachers unfortunately seem to think they need to do but the other thing is to name these things can i tell you a story of course <laughs> um it's it's I went to a conference um, a couple of years ago, and it was a conference about rape, culture and religion. And it was it was on a Friday. Um, And I tell you that because I hadn't I was going to be preaching on the Sunday and I was preaching on a particular psalm. And I hadn't written my sermon, which is quite standard, actually, at that point. But what I tend to do, my pattern is that I will just mull on the text all week um, and then it kind of comes together fairly late in the week. So as I went up to this conference, I printed out the psalm I was going to be preaching on. And took it with me just as part of that kind of mulling process and when i got there i i I dropped this piece of paper face up on the desk so all day i was sitting listening to frankly some terrible terrible stories and i had this psalm on the desk looking at me and the psalm i can't remember the number i'm afraid offhand, but it has the it speaks about um you evildoers and it says um they think god does not see you fools does he who made the eye not see and you know i'm hearing about domestic abuse i'm hearing about child sexual abuse i'm hearing about these terrible things which happen behind closed doors and there's this psalm saying to me you fools you think god does not see and i just and i just knew that this is what i had to speak on on sunday this is what i had to do with this psalm and it was a really really hard sermon to preach and i spoke well i i stood up and i first of all said all the children are going to Sunday school today, like it or not, they have to go. Yep. And then I said, and, and obviously this was, this was my own church that I was minister of, and I'd been there for quite a while. I knew them very well. And I said, and I, I could not preach this sermon if I didn't know you well and love you. And this is a really hard sermon to preach, and it's going to be a hard one to hear. But I spoke about pornography, which is deeply abusive. Um, and I spoke about child sex abuse. And I, and I, used, I used this song. And it was it was very hard to, to, to preach. Afterwards, four people—it's not a big church—four people spoke to me about sexual abuse they had experienced, and two of those um, people had had not just dis- two of them I knew about, but two had never disclosed it to me before. These—we need to we need to be brave enough to wear these things in our pulpits. Um, we need to do it carefully. We need to do it pastorally. Mm. Can't go charging into a place we don't know, and we need to be aware of. The, the hurt that might come out of it. But there is healing to, 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 be, uh, to be found here um, and we need to be brave about it.
0: Within stories throughout the Bible, you do often, you encounter moments of change. Now, you've just talked very powerfully about survivors coming forwards. Throughout your studies, have you, you considered much about people who have previously been violent or involved in acts of violence and who are exploring or are now prompted to make that change? Hmm.
1: I haven't got personal experience um, there. I haven't done prison work, for example. I suppose the closest I've come to that, um, I've recently published a book about domestic abuse hmm. and it's aimed at it's aimed at women because of the situation. It's it's written within. I know domestic abuse takes isn't just male and female, but it's it's aimed at women who are having the Bible weaponized against them by their husbands. Um, but at the end of that, I address explicitly address the abusers at the end of that book because it's possible that they will pick it up, that they will thumb through it, and so yes, I don't know. I mean, I'm still. It's it's only recently out. Um, I'm starting to get some people saying, thank you, this has been helpful. I have yet to have somebody come and say, this brought me to repentance. But may that be, <laughs> may that be.
0: Well, thank you very much for all we've explored. It feels like we've really spent time in some really tricky mm. spaces, but our listeners always need to start somewhere. So for you, what what do you think the first steps to reading Old Testament violence you know, what are the first steps a peacemaker can take when beginning to read those stories of Old Testament violence?
1: The very first step, I would say, is to start with the Gospels. If, if for people who, who aren't familiar with, with Scripture, don't start with the Old Testament violence, um, because it will it will give you a um, it'll give you a unrepresentative picture of uh, of of what the Bible is about. And we need to start by discovering who Jesus is. But then I would say read read with attention to the fact that this is not, that the narrator is often not endorsing this. The narrator may well be uh, criticizing it, even if the narrator doesn't say, and this was a bad thing because they're often more subtle than that. Um, They're better writers as it were than that. So for people who struggle with this question of Old Testament violence, I've written a book which is aimed at non-specialists and it's called God of Violence Yesterday, God of Love Today, question mark. Question marks very important there. Which helps, which I hope helps to. It uh, certainly aims to help people to to grapple with these questions.
0: And I suppose that leads me to my final question, which is: You spend your life immersed in biblical violence. For me, one of the greatest Christian assets is hope. How do you find hope in it all?
1: I find hope in it all by knowing that one day Jesus is going to come back, and He's going to right every wrong, and that that yeah <laughs> that that in all its fullness uh you know that that those who um weep in the dark will will sing um in the light that every injustice will be overturned that there will be no more war the, the, the picture we have the end of revelation of murderers being excluded from the new jerusalem shows us that the new this the new heavens and the earth will be inherently non-violent and uh, i pray regularly for that day to come and uh can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. Thank
0: you so much, Helen. It's it's been a really gripping conversation. As you've already plugged, you've got a book, God of Violence Yesterday, God of Love Today, question mark, wrestling honestly with the Old Testament. You've also written The Bible Doesn't Tell Me, So Why You Don't Have to Submit to Domestic Violence. There's a couple of Grove booklets on other topics that you've written, but I know that you've also started a podcast recently. Go on, give us a plug about
1: that. Oh, thank you. Well, it's called Guns and God, and it's looking at places where uh, faith and politics overlap. So we have conversations around um, anti-Semitism, around um, the use of uh, the use of scripture by the radical right gun culture in the USA, questions around pacifism, around Islamism, a whole range of questions with invited guests, enormous fun to, uh, to, to well, enormously interesting to, to have those conversations and uh, I hope to listen to
0: so a reminder of the title of it Guns and God available from all good podcast feeds as will the Peacecast be so Helen thank you so much for your time today thank you for having me thanks for listening to the Peacecast a podcast from the Fellowship of Reconciliation presented by John Cooper produced by Jack Woodruff and edited by MIDI Media. If you've enjoyed it, please like, review, and share on social media and follow us at the Peacecast.